Would you please uh, turn with me to Ruth, chapter 1. I have the privilege of leading us in this next uh, uh, cadence of our worship. And that worship that we call you to right now is the worship of um, longing for the word and submitting to the word. Knowing our need for it and knowing its place in the life of God's people. I would invite you to join with me as I read Ruth chapter 1 and beginning in verse 6. Then she, this is Naomi, arose with her daughters in law and returned to the country to return from the country of Moab. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with me and the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I am too old to have a husband. I should say, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned 
and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came into Bethlehem. The time was the beginning of barley harvest. You can be seated. And children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Last week, we gave some attention to the introduction of this letter about its setting. I would commend to you a reminder again today that this story exists in the library that is the Holy Scripture. That library is unified in its message. The message, the, the meta-narrative, the, the story over the stories. The story is the greatness of God. That greatness of God, that glory of God is undeniable in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The revelation of God. Ruth fits in that. As we examine today, this section, this paragraph, we'll see three characters, three women. Ruth, Orpah, Naomi. And like with any good biographical sketch, I hope now that reading their lives will help us read our own story more honestly in the sight of Almighty God. So would you allow their three distinct expressions and actions to be for us an assessment, a moment of honesty about our own life. The title for this sermon is A Heart Adopted. It struck me in reading the chapter how often Orpah and Ruth are called daughters-in-law. By the time the chapter closes, Ruth acts in an extraordinary way communicating that her heart has been adopted into Naomi's family. There is an unexplainable commitment and loyalty that Ruth shows to Naomi that's commendable for us today. In this first chapter, God's hand has already been hard on the woman Naomi and her family. You see, a famine had struck in their homeland, and so they go to a neighboring country, the wilderness of Moab. In the wilderness of Moab, her husband dies. The Bible doesn't tell us how, what the circumstances were. Her husband's name was Elimelech, and he dies. She has two sons, Malon and Kilion. They marry women from that country. The Bible says after 10 years, Malon and Kilion die. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why, but it seems to be, it's possible that from their names, these are men who were born with physical ailments. They had weaknesses, they had frailties in their health that might have plagued them their entire life. After being married, they die. We don't hear any account that Naomi has grandchildren either. She is left alone. So grief-stricken that she says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And we'll see later in our study today, in verse 20, the Almighty 
has dealt very bitterly with me, verse 20. As you read through this story, there's another thing. Apart from the fact that these two young girls are the daughters-in-law, who then Ruth expresses a covenant commitment to her mother-in-law. Apart from that, you'll also see that this particular section of chapter 1 is a story about returning. Many times we're going to hear that this is a story of Naomi returning. Ruth going with her. Here, as we read this story of returning, Orpah, Ruth, and Naomi epitomize three very different responses to God's leading. Three very different expressions of the sovereign, providential dealing of God. In fact, I want to break this into three sections then and take each one of the three characters and see, first of all, providence, second of all, evidence, and third, repentance. Providence, evidence, repentance. Looking at the first one in chapters 1, verses 6 through 9. Naomi begins her return home, and we see here in this part of the story a providence for a weary believer. Naomi trusts in God, but her trust is worn thin. She has found through some tragedies in her life that God is opposed to her, and she is weary in that. <clears throat> Naomi <clears throat> begins to return home. The Bible says, then she arose, applying that she had been laid out in a prone posture. The verb is singular. Naomi did this. The daughters-in-law are kind of tag-along. Naomi rises to go back to Bethlehem in Judah because she had heard that the Lord had visited. Now, when you hear in the Bible that the Lord has visited, sometimes that's great news. Sometimes it's not. We shouldn't presume on the holiness of God that when he arrives, it is always for blessing, or when he arrives, it is always for judgment. There are accounts in Scripture where it's sometimes each. The Lord had visited and had provided food again, the Bible says. The Lord visits in Bethlehem, Judah, and provides food. Naomi heard this, and she returns to her home country. Verse 7, the impression we get is that as Naomi and her two daughters rise to go back to Bethlehem, it doesn't require a lot of packing. Naomi's preparations could be made quickly because she was literally left empty. It's what she's going to say when she gets back to Bethlehem. She's going to arrive in Bethlehem and says, don't, don't call me Naomi. I left here full. I come back today empty. It's just Naomi and Ruth. Naomi invites the young girls to leave with her from their place, but then as they walk, they converse, and Naomi says, it's time for you to go back now to your home. She tells them to go back to their families. Naomi prays over them that the Lord would deal kindly, verse 7 and 8. We should not overlook the fact that when Naomi prays, she prays to Yahweh, the name of the God of Israel. She knew one God, she was a monotheist. She did not have numerous gods, and therefore when she asked God for blessing on these two young girls, she prayed to 
for God and says, may the Lord deal kindly with. Literally, Naomi says, may God show you uh, his said, a peace that comes from a loving kindness. Naomi prays for the two young girls. May God give you a peace of his loving kindness. Now, allow me to speculate at this point something that I think becomes clearer later. I think Naomi is struggling a little bit with a sense that she is the cursed one. And God still may do things that are loving and kind, but not around her. May God do to you peace, loving, and kindness. I think we get a hint that Naomi is expressing a faltering confidence that God was going to carry her, I think. Naomi adds prayer for their future prosperity, praying for Ruth and Orpah, praying again to Yahweh God, a God she still confesses, that these two young ladies would once again settle down with new husbands. In ancient times, a thousand years before the life of Christ, there was not professional opportunity, there was not vocational opportunity for these two young ladies. The best hope for their security of existence was husbands, which was a risk in itself because your peace and existence depended on the quality of that husband. And she prays that they would go back and find the stability of a husband and family. Naomi saw no future for the young women in her country. Being Moabites, there wouldn't be Israelite men who would even consider these two young girls as wives. So she kissed them in farewell, and the trio joins together in loud weeping, which is a very Eastern expression of their grief. There is providence in this paragraph that Naomi can't see yet. See, we've read this story, and we know that there is a person coming whose name is Boaz, we know that there's a covenant daughter-in-law who's going to be adopted to be like a daughter in Ruth. And we know all of those things. But in this moment, God's providence to a weary believer is not yet seen by the weary believer. I think about James chapter 1 as I read this. In James chapter 1, the, uh, the, the, the church, the Christian is commended to count it a joy when you fall into diverse, various, entangling troubles, knowing that these moments of trouble are the maturing of your faith. Every good and perfect gift is coming from God. We have almost this unfair advantage right now in evaluating Boaz or evaluating Naomi's life by saying, Naomi, don't be discouraged. There's a guy named Boaz, 
and things are going to go well. And, and Ruth, in just a couple of verses, is going to refuse to leave you even to the point of death. And then from that, the land is being plagued by judges where everyone's doing that, which is right in their own eyes, or a season of judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. The people need kingly leadership, and that's going to come expressly through David. And we know that great providence is going to be Jesus Christ. But in this moment, Naomi doesn't know any of what we already know. She's walking by faith and not by sight. But we do know that there is providence toward her right now. Even while she says the hand of the Lord has been against me. We see providence to the weary believer. And that might be you. The weary believer. Why has the Lord dealt with me this way? And before I step away from this point, I simply want to say, if you are a believer, then God has already richly blessed you with the greatest treasure of heaven. If he who did not keep his own son from us, what good thing would he withhold from us? If you are, in fact, eternally secure in Christ, what do you suppose God is denying to bless you with? He sent his son to die in your place. Is there some gift, is there some charity of heaven that's more valuable that he's hesitant to pour out on you? And ultimately, what Naomi doesn't know yet is that the greatest treasure of heaven is coming through this story. And what you don't know yet what you might not see right now is that you already have, if you're a believer, the greatest treasure of heaven, which is Christ. So God's providence to even weary believers, which very well might be you, is evident in this story. And it's going to be evident through the life of us as believers. Second, though, there's evidence of an unbeliever. So second, there's evidence of an unbeliever. Um, let's look at verse 10. Orpah and Ruth, in agreement, reject Naomi's request. You need to go back to your families, to your gods, and find husbands there. And they said to her, verse 10, No, we will return with you to your people. They both say, We'll go to your countrymen. At this point, Naomi communicates the hopelessness of these girls returning with her and she reminds them, I cannot bear you husbands. Naomi is referring to the Leverite vow. A Leverite commitment. If a man dies 
a married man dies, there was instruction that that man, the deceased man's brother, was to take his wife as her own wife, as his own wife, to care for her and provide for her. That was the life insurance policy. I mentioned to you last week there was the life insurance policy of the, uh, uh, somebody help me, dowry, the marriage dowry. This is another life insurance policy. And Naomi says, I can't give you that. My sons have died. I don't have any more sons for you. Those boys didn't have any brothers. I can't do that for you. She gets even vivid, and she says, okay, let's just pretend. Like I could get married. I'm too old to be remarried, but let's pretend like I could get remarried and immediately bear sons for you. Are you just going to wait the next 20 years until they become adults and then they'll become your husbands? You're going to refuse to marry so that you can watch my two sons grow up and then they'll be your husbands? This is, this is crazy. Naomi puts significant pressure. But she says, I am grieved exceedingly. Far more bitter is all of this for me than you, Naomi says. And there's truth in that. They'd each lost husbands, but Naomi had also lost two sons. In addition to that, the two younger ladies could remarry. But Naomi says, there's no hope for that for me. Concluding, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This time again, verse 14, Naomi's words provoke more crying. The women raise their voice in lamentation. And again, as before, Naomi had kissed Orpah. This time, Orpah kisses Naomi, her mother. Naomi is persuaded. she bids Naomi farewell. Join me in seeing these three women on some sort of dusty trail in the wilderness of Moab. No supplies in tow. Just three ladies really vulnerable sojourners with broken hearts. And now they're saying goodbye. In the West, and in our generation of commuting and communication, we probably don't understand the sobriety of this goodbye. This is not see you later. Some of you have taking your children off to college. And you have known the, the grief of that, I'll see you later. Some of you have had loved ones who have passed away. And still, for you, there might have been a, I'll see you later. As Orpah and Naomi part ways, they are parting ways 
from then through eternity. There won't be a 12-month reunion. I'll come back down here Christmas time. We'll see each other. This will be it. And not only are they parting ways in this life, but they're parting ways to a life that will lead to a very different eternity. Orpah had once before said, I'll go live with your people. We're going to see in just a moment that that's a contrast Ruth doesn't say. Ruth doesn't just say, I'm going to go live with your people. Ruth says more than that. Orpah says, yeah, I'll go to your people. Listen, there's hopelessness there. There's no reasonable potential for a husband. Let me walk you through just a couple of things. I want to say the first one humbly. Naomi is going from a land where Yahweh is not the God of the people. There is a God named Kamash, which is the popular deity of the people. And I want to say this humbly. In Naomi's grief, in her hopelessness, that practically somehow Orpah might find a husband in Bethlehem, Judah, does Naomi turn her daughter-in-law to a spiritual despair? I'm not sure the part of faith that's played between Naomi and Orpah. But I want to commend you that when you start to lose sight of the joy of your salvation, and conclude, God must be against me, you're probably not a very faithful evangelist. Okay? Please guard that. Please guard your joy. Guard your joy. So that when the time comes, you will always be ready to give an answer to the hope that lives in you. Then we have this evidence that Orpah is not a believer. And I am not suggesting that's Naomi's fault, but I am saying that Naomi's communication to a young lady that directs her back to a pagan country is a sad event. However, it's clear in this account that Orpah is evidencing that she is unsaved. She is not drawn to the God of Israel the way that we are going to see in a moment that Ruth expresses. There's a couple of accounts where this story reminds us of some stories in the Bible. For instance, there's a rich young ruler one day that comes to Jesus. And he says, what do I have to do to get into heaven? I'm keeping all the rules. Jesus, knowing his heart, knowing that he was very rich and covetous, says to him, just give everything away and, or sell everything and, and give the proceeds away to the poor. And the man walked away sorrowful because he had much. Like Orpah. There, I, I cannot tell you that there is great benefit in this life going back with me to Bethlehem, Judah, Naomi says. And Orpah says, 
there's more benefit for me in this life back in Moab, which is not untrue. There's a parable that Jesus tells of four different soils. And one of the soils, he says, there is this pressure, there is this, this, this allure of the world that chokes out the seed of the gospel. Paul himself had a co-laborer named Demas who he says abandoned the gospel ministry because he loved the present world. Orpah is that example. She is that illustration. She is evidence of unbelief. Jesus had said once to a young lawyer who came and asked a hard question, he says, Jesus, he said, what's the greatest command of the law? They agree about the answer. Love God, love your neighbor. And the conclusion of that interaction is that Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Orpah stood there with Naomi in a moment of decision. Orpah might have been thinking to herself, Naomi, why, why are we headed to Bethlehem? Well, that's right. The God over creation has visited there and there's food again. So the very reason you came here in the first place has been undone by the providence of your God who controls apparently the harvest. And now you're going back there. But Naomi is dissuaded from that reality by the possibility she might not find a husband. And I would say to you right now, like Jesus, there are a lot of people, like Jesus says to the lawyer, there are a lot of people who aren't far from the kingdom of God. I have told numerous people that in my opinion, there's 16 inches between heaven and hell. There are people like yourself right now who are verbally admitting the reality of scripture and the gospel. And you've come and you've, you've sat here in a church gathering and you're agreeable. But the place where the gospel, the place where the Spirit of God would create a heart of flesh, there's still a heart of stone. And mentally, you're agreeable, but your heart is still hard to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the invitation to his salvation, his lordship. And I want to say that there really is 16 inches for maybe some of you between heaven and hell. And maybe right now, maybe right now, you think Christianity seems to hold several inconveniences and troubles for me. Going with Naomi into Bethlehem, Judah, does not seem like a lucrative or, or advantageous course of action for my life. And so I'll go back this way. And I would only warn you what would a man gain if he has everything life could offer but loses his soul? There's evidence of unbelief in Orpah. But if we're to use these three characters as examples, as illustrations, let's move into the third one. We have the providence to a weary believer. We have evidence of an unbeliever. Let's look at what repentance might look like 
and faith for a true believer. Naomi uses the example of Orpah leaving to one more time press on Ruth in verse 19. I'm sorry, in verse 15. One more time to say, look, your sister-in-law has left. She says Orpah is returning to, look at verse 15, her people and her gods. So I hope that I'm not overstretching the spiritual illustrations of this because of indications like that one. She has not only gone back to her family, she's not only gone back to find a husband, she's going back to her gods, and I'm going that way to my God. And what will Ruth do? Ruth answers in a classic expression of faithfulness in verse 16. She will determine to be cut off from her own people, but she will take Naomi's people as her people, and her decision has religious implications of which she's not even yet unaware. Aware, Naomi's God will be her God. In the very next verse, Naomi swears by the name of God, Yahweh. Indicating she's already come to trust that he will be the judge of her soul. If she lies, if she abandons this oath to bind herself to Naomi, even unto death, then God be her judge. She swears by the name of Yahweh that she will stay with Naomi until death. And she will die where Naomi dies. She calls on divine punishment if she fails to keep her word. Ruth is determined that nothing, not even death, shall separate her from this covenant promise. Naomi is finally convinced. If, if my recollection serves, Naomi has made three pungent cases to make the girls turn back. Two to both of them, and now one more time to Ruth. But she is convinced that Ruth isn't going anywhere. She sees, in verse 18, the, the, the literal expression is she sees that Ruth is steadfastly minded. She has an unshakable commitment. So Naomi accepts the situation and stops arguing. Two of them turn north from their conversation and take one step at a time back toward Judah, back into Bethlehem. And verse 19, the pair journeyed until they came back to Bethlehem. As they approached the city, there's a buzz of excitement. People are outside. It's time of the harvest. Everyone's got a job to do. They're all out in the streets, and they see two women on foot walking into Bethlehem. Isn't, isn't that Naomi? I don't know how long she's been gone. Remember the Bible says 10 years, and I don't know if that's 10 years they were married 
or if that's 10 years they lived in Moab. I, I don't know. But when she walks back into town, people recognize her, and they're a little shocked because the, the coming back in looks a lot different than the leaving. I would speculate there was probably possessions. There was certainly a husband and two sons. Now, just two widows. When she comes back, they say, isn't that Naomi? And she says, don't, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Bitter. Bitter. Naomi says in verse 21, I left here full, I came back empty. Naomi is convinced that the hand of God has been against her. Let me invite you right now to answer the question for yourself. Has the hand of God been against Naomi? Let me give you some talking points as you have that conversation with yourself in a non-creepy way. The Talmud, actually, the, the, the law book of Judaism, says that's exactly what happened. The reason that Naomi's husband and two sons died was because they left the land of promise and God was judging them. God was dealing with them. Certainly, horrible events had transpired. But I said before, we know the whole story. Is this God's disgust with Naomi? And I, I want to bring this up because she says, I, I once had been full and now I am empty. Would you, would you say the same? The Naomi in the first verse and the Naomi in the last verse. Would you say, oh, that one was so much better? Oh, and this one at the end is so much worse. Could I just commend to you that the light and momentary affliction of this world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And if from this story, as part of the meta-narrative, the glory of God in the person, work, and the revelation of Jesus Christ, if her light momentary affliction pales in comparison to the glory that we will receive in Christ, then what of Naomi's story in the story of Ruth? I simply don't want the reader to look at Naomi. I don't want you to look at yourself like Job's friend. God must hate you. You should shake your fist at the heaven, curse him, and just get it over with. It seems like he hates you so much, he's just going to make your life miserable. 
can't you just curse him and be struck by lightning so it can end? And you might look at Naomi's life and for a brief moment you'd say, oh, Naomi, you left the land of Canaan. You should have told Elimelech this is where we're supposed to stay. You might look at Naomi that way, but more my concern is that you might look at yourself and interpret every sadness of the fall as God's displeasure with you. I don't want that. We live in a curse. It is a reality. It is tragic. But every sad affair is not meant to be mistranslated as God's disgust with us. What good thing would he withhold if he's already given us pleasure? I left full and I came back empty. I think is an expression of her nearsightedness. It's also an expression of practicality. So I critique the statement humbly. Ruth, however, is the point here. The faith that produces returning is evident in function. Again, let me draw your attention to James. James says, you tell me you have faith. I can show you I do. We look at Orpah and Ruth and say, who believed that going to the land where Yahweh had visited was a good idea? Ruth did. Ruth swears herself <clears throat> to Naomi's people and her God. She swears by that God. And the evidence of her faith is made known in her function. I would say to you, just to be careful with evaluating only your confession. Um, again, I want to draw from James. No, I was not doing devotions in the book of James this week. But I want to draw again from James. James says, you say that there is one God. Good for you. But really, what does that mean? Because demons also say there's one God. And they're afraid of him. They confess his authority that he will be the final judge. So when you say to us, there is one God, the God of the Bible, that is the same thing demons say. But in James, the point is, faith without work is dead. Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. How do we know Abraham believed God? Because everywhere God said to go, Abraham went. Abraham, leave the land of Ur, the Chal your, your, your family, leave the land. Okay, and he goes. Every, uh, your, your, your old and, and barren wife and you are going to have a son, and, and he's going to be uh, the father of many nations and countless numbers of people. Oh, okay. And they have a son. Okay, now, now you have a son. Now uh, take him over there and put him on a rock and just end it. Okay, and he does all of that, right? Evidence of salvation, faith with works.
invite you to evaluate. As you hear their story, I invite you to evaluate our story, ourselves that way. So I hope that reading their lives will help us read our own more honestly in the sight of Almighty God. Orpha, Ruth, Naomi, illustrating for us, you might be weary, but God is providing, even where in your story you can't see the following chapters. The invitation to follow Christ is not an invitation to an easier, more convenient, more reasonable life. And so what will you choose? If it seems like the prospect of earthly provision isn't on the road north into a life in Christ, will you choose what seems more practically rational? The evidence of real, repentant faith is work. What is our response? How does the story shed light on our story? And then lastly, what starts as a daughter-in-law becomes something else. What starts as a decree to be together, legally, beautifully transforms. Like adoption. There's a lot of examples in our own life. Some of you have son and daughter-in-laws, parent-in-laws, and maybe at first you were legally bound to familial kindnesses. But then over time, your heart experiences a sort of adoption, and there is a kindredness that grows. Ruth's heart adopted in a way that is supernatural. It reminds me of the promise from Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, that our hearts are miraculously transformed. God will come and take the heavy tablets of the law out of our hands and instead place them on our hearts, translating our heart from stone to flesh in the process. And what had been a legal expectation becomes joy-filled transformation. That's Ruth. Walking north to a very unpredictable future. With what seems like a smile on her face because she won the argument with Naomi. Because of Christ, that sort of adoption can be ours through faith in Him. There can be 
spiritual transformation where there had once been legal demand obey God or suffer his wrath. We are adopted, given by the Spirit of God in our own hearts a new expression to cry out, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that this, this account of the story in your story <clears throat> would be used by your Spirit to illuminate our own story would we, would we be humble in assessing ourselves like in that interaction? Are we Christians who are so discouraged by certain events recently that the only thing we can proclaim is that God is dealing heavy with us? Probably, even if not right now, probably have been and will likely be tempted to be. Guard us. Loving Father, guard us by your spirit. Uh, there might be people who have come here to be with us today. We're so glad to be together who understand the allure of practical advantages that the world is offering. And it's kind of like Moab is offering them peace. And we're standing today tempted to the provision of this life only and not aware yet of the provision of that life which is to come in Christ. So, Lord, create in them not just a fear of those who can negatively affect this life, but, Lord, only a fear of that which can affect life eternal. An awe, a dependence, a reverence for your grace. And then, God, would we see in ourselves a faith that has uh, an obedience, a function, perseverance like with Ruth. So God, thank you for the work of this text in us. Grow us to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ in the name and the anthem that is the Christian church in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.